Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons. I'm your host, Kerry Parker. Today, we have episode 267 for April 11th, 2022, and we've got a really fun interview for you today. I love these guys. Uh, I forget how I ran across the Tech Learning Collective, but uh, they have some great classes. I've taken uh, several of them at this point, and it turns out all from the same instructor, who is the same person we are interviewing here today. He's a really great person. And uh, I've very much enjoyed his classes, and we've got a great discussion going here. And you'll notice that today's episode is a little bit long, and I actually thought really hard about trying to edit it down, and I just I went through it, and I just couldn't find a place that I wanted to cut out. So we're going to run a little bit long today, so I'm going to try to keep the intro and outro a little bit short. So a couple quick notes. Uh, the All the winners from the contest last month have been notified via email. If you have not gotten your email, please check your spam folder. This is the kind of thing that would... You know, usually get flagged as spam. Hey, you want a contest? Click here, right? So, but this this one's real, uh, at least hopefully for you anyway. And by the way, the grand prize winner, the grand prize winner, your mailbox is full. So I recorded this kind of early, so uh, it, it may be fixed by the time this episode comes out. But if you are the grand prize winner, please check your uh, inbox. It is full. Now, quickly set up the interview. Uh, again, trigger warning, there is one quick F-bomb in here but I didn't have the heart to remove it. I thought it was kind of funny. Also, we're going to talk about the original motivations for this group. And it's obviously the original motivations for creating the Tech Learning Collective were very specific, but I just want you to keep in mind as you're listening to this, these classes are for everybody, literally anybody. I mean, let's face it, today our world is computers and the internet. And this group goes to great lengths and, and does a very good job of explaining how it all works in ways that anybody could understand. Uh, during the interview, he mentions that we talked about, he and I talked about, downloading Wikipedia, which we did, but it was it was not on air. So he's referring to something that you haven't heard yet. Uh, so that might sound weird, but that's why. But I did talk to him about that, and I recently did it myself, actually, to prove that I could kind of do it. So I'll circle back to that in the outro. But we've got a long interview, and it's a lot of fun, so let's not waste any more time. Let's get to the interview with the Tech Learning Collective. Today, I'm talking with the lead cybersecurity instructor for the Tech Learning Collective. Welcome back to the podcast. Hi, thanks so much for having us back. It's really good to be here. And with all the stuff going on in Europe right now, the the invasion of Ukraine by Russia, uh, it's brought up a lot of more dire, more interesting, more, I don't know how you put it, uh, cybersecurity oh uh, situations. And things that you know a lot of us have thought about in the abstract that are now becoming very real yes. uh, for a lot of people. <laughs> and so... I thought it would be interesting for us to talk because you guys do obviously a lot of wonderful classes around these sort of things. And again, now that it's become really like real, I, I you know, mm -hmm. I, with that context, I thought it'd be good to kind of talk about some basics in cybersecurity and, and, and privacy and anonymity and things like that. So why don't we start off though? Tell us a little bit. Uh, it's been a while for a lot of us. So tell us a little bit about what you guys do. Sure. So um, yeah, first of all, I mean, it's, 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 very timely topics for a lot of people. We are a cybersecurity and infrastructure engineering, not quite boot camp. You can almost think of us like an anti-boot camp. We basically do um, open to the public twice weekly, give or take these days, workshops on all these topics, cybersecurity, infrastructure engineering, system administration, some coding, not a lot, just a little bit, just enough to sort of like have the perspective for it. And the reason that we do this is in this way is because we are we found we were founded as a political affinity group here in New York City. 
in about the 2016, 2017-ish era, shortly after a certain presidential election. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, and, and again, that was also another event, right, that made real for a lot of people the um, understanding of why cyber and digital safety mattered. Right. And how it affects the physical world. I think there's yeah. no more, I guess it's poignant is perhaps the wrong word, but there's no more like, you know, pronounced expression of this as, of course, cyber war. Um, yeah. And then, of course, physical like hot war. Right. Like that yeah. we're seeing now. So so that is very timely for people. And at, when these things come up, people often, you know, humans, I guess, as a, as a species are not that great at, at preparing ahead of time. <sighs> right. Necessarily. But when things come up, it's good to have resources to turn to. And so we were very focused on making sure that there was a place to go for people who saw the impact and the importance of this in their lives to both learn about things from a, like a defense uh, perspective, right? Kind of like digital self-defense style stuff, but also just an awareness of how to build these kinds of infrastructures that don't necessarily rely on existing massive global systems on uh, like necess- not necessarily capital I internet, um, even in some cases, and I'm sure we'll talk about that as we're seeing, in this case, Russia right begin to try to to try to uh, unplug yeah. and uh, and close down. So there's a lot of like relevance to there too, um, and we do it again with a very political mindset and with a very queer forward trans centric um, mm-hmm. right like dem- de- uh, demographics. Um, everyone who runs Tech Learning Collective is gender queer of some variety, mm-hmm. um, and we wanted to make a space where this topic wasn't just available to those with a lot of money who could go to like sans classes and like you know pay eight hundred dollars for you know like a six-hour workshop but really only needed to you know sort of like commit a a small small amount of money our workshops are anywhere between 25 to 35 dollars generally um for about two hours and often as i think you might have recalled (laughs) we run a little bit long when i have uh fun with uh fun with student Mm -hmm. questions and things and yeah and so and to provide just like a um a a sort of like a, a, a 101 to 201 bridge for all these topics that affect people's lives in ways that um, are perhaps not as uh, not not as, not something that people would normally think about unless they're you know under either some threat or concern or they have some other sort of project or um, affinity group or uh, like you know workplace uh, need right to, to to have an understanding of how our digital systems work and keep this current society at least. <laughs> running, but also what it can do to change it and how we can, how we can influence that on our own. So that's kind of like a, a, a sort of a philosophical overview of it. But in general, the, like, the, the day-to-day are workshops, classes. We do a lot of mentoring. We have a lot of social events in the city as well. So if you are in New York City and you are subscribing to our calendar, you'll, you'll see occasional um, socials and hangouts and parties and things like that. So that's, that's us. Well, it's wonderful, and I have I have taken some of your your classes, uh, not just like the collectives, but yours specifically. Uh, yeah, and, and, uh, I remember. <laughs> yeah, and uh, they're a lot of fun, and they're so informative, and they're so laid back. I, I really, really enjoy those. So, uh, absolutely, if you're looking to learn some of the stuff, it, these are great classes, and they're very different than any than most other classes I've taken in a very good way. So, yeah, I think one of the things that I'll, I'll point out just on, on that on that note is like I'll, when people hear classes, they often think of school, right? right like they yeah. think of, and one of the things that we like to talk about, um, especially when we talk about the security topics, which is mostly what. I teach is that when you are thinking about security, you are often trying to think about failure modes and how things break. And so if you are constantly taught to follow a checklist and play by the rules and be in the boxes, right, Mm -hmm. then you're not going to necessarily be a great security engineer um, by definition, because (laughs) you're being trained how to think inside a very specific 
set of boxes and all of the best engineers, right? Like don't have necessarily, in in my opinion anyway, don't necessarily have CS degrees. They're not necessarily computer experts, right? They're philosophers, they're artists, they're um, body hackers, right? Queer people. They are musicians. Uh, There are people who have some way of understanding the world from a creative and and even I would say mythic perspective. Mm. And that's how that's how you start thinking outside the box and start to see where things will fail, how things could be different. Right. And so um, our workshops reflect that pedagogy and are very, very conversational in nature. There's not like homework to take home. In fact, we encourage people to come not necessarily even prepared, but to but to come being willing and being ready to be exposed to new things so that they leave prepared to take advantage of resources that are already out there. Absolutely. Yeah. Again, I highly recommend if you, these classes are not that expensive and they're really a lot of fun. Mm. So for anybody. Um, so absolutely. Well, cheers. Thanks for the plug. <laughs> yeah. Oh, sure. Uh, guaranteed. Um, so again, this is what I think when things like this happen, it, it, it gives us, you know, a lot of people don't prepare for the storm until I've actually gone through one. Like they think, cause it's like somehow in the future it might happen. It may not happen to me. And then all of a sudden, mm-hmm. Oh my God, I just went through a week without power because of an ice storm that came through or, you know, yeah. I, I live in a country that was a democratic for 30 years and all of a sudden isn't, you know, mm. where the, it really brings these things home. So, you know, hope for the best, but prepare for the worst. And so we're going to talk about some of that today. And hopefully, you know, this will give a little more context, a little more urgency maybe to some of these things and, and bring them home. So for one thing, we, we, you know, here certainly in the United States and probably a lot of the first world, you know, take the internet totally for granted and not, not just as its existence, but, you know, but ubiquitous access to it. Right. And, uh, you know, many of the courses you guys offer, you know, dive into the details, uh, at some level, all the various protocols, you know, the things that make up today's internet. And, you know, obviously we can't cover that today. That's why you guys have classes, but, um, <laughs> <laughs> but for, to lay some foundation, you know, for our discussion that we're about to have, you know, can you maybe give us a very high level talk about the, the key things we need to understand? about how the internet works and then maybe you know you know while the internet was designed to be extremely resilient it still does have shortcomings so you know maybe what are some of the main weak points of today's internet yeah that's a really important place to start right and i think also it's important to point out that like while a lot of us have what we would consider ubiquitous access to the internet even in the states and i think especially in the states it's comparison to some other countries right like internet access is not as ubiquitous as we would like and even in places where you have it it might not be very or fast enough to be useful for the things that you're doing with it, right? And so, like, there's a lot of importance in our classes, especially, but also just in general to, like, understand what the internet is to talk about access before you talk about the actual failure modes and, you know, like, packets and all this sort of, like, you know, technical stuff, right? Just getting online is a huge hurdle for a lot of people. And, of course, in uh, situations where, you know, you've got infrastructure that's degraded for any number of reasons, that's going to be even harder. The thing that I think makes uh, the internet, well, so the thing the thing that makes the internet resilient that I think people overlook, right? And this is the thing that is perhaps maybe even the most, the most important takeaway, right, from, for understanding the internet is that it's not really as, or it's, I should say it's as much about agreements about how to communicate with one another as it is about the technology itself mm. and the infrastructure that powers it. So what I mean by that is like, you know, we are speaking the same language right now, human language, English, Um, Mm -hmm. we both know it. And so we have some agreements about what words mean. Generally, we have some agreements about like, you know, grammar, and this means this, this agreement called English, right, is the way that we can make meaning out of these sounds that we're, you know, talking, Mm -hmm. you know, speaking uh, with, right. Mm -hmm. So that is 
like philosophically what the internet is too. It's a it's an agreement of a communications protocol. So if you understand the language, right? And if you like which is say if you have the capabilities of making the sounds or in the internet's case, right, emitting the electrical signals in a certain way, then you can be part of the internet. And the thing that I think is mind-boggling for some folks because we don't experience the internet in this way is that anyone can do this. It is not about being a massive corporation or a government or a genius inventor or anything like that, right? If you have a computer with what we call a TCP IP stack, right? Pieces of software basically that know how to emit the electrical signals in the order that the internet agrees to communicate with, right? In Mm -hmm. the English language of the internet, if you will, Mm -hmm. then you can connect a node up to the internet. That's what made it so exponentially, that's what made it grow so exponentially fast and what made it, and what makes it so uh, potentially, right? Potentially accessible. Mm -hmm. So you need those computers. You also need to know a little bit about how to configure that software, right? But it's actually not particularly difficult to do. And so the important takeaway is that every single part of the internet, by definition, is an agreement of some variety. So we can look at like the super, super foundational levels of like the ethernet protocol and like connecting a wire from one computer to another, right? Mm -hmm. That is they, the, the, those, if you connect two computers with a wire, they can speak to each other. They can send data across that cable. They can write share files or whatever it is you want to do with them because they understand the same language. You build that up from one layer uh, on top of another. They all speak those those different protocols, and because they all know what to do with that information, they can talk to each other, right? And so when we talk about what the the internet and understanding both how it is resilient and also how it is fragile, this is the core concept to get, which is to say, when you are trying to speak to people you don't know, right? In other words, computers that you don't necessarily have any pre-existing relationship with or knowledge of, then you're going to need to do this through either intermediaries, right? Like other computers, or you're going to need to have some measure of trust in the environment in which you find yourself. So in the physical world, this is like if you get bad directions, right, while you're uh, driving on, you know, a country road that you've never been on before, then you're not going to end up in the place that you intend. And computers have the same problem. If I send you, right, via like a spoof DNS query to the wrong place, right, you're going to end up at a place that you don't necessarily intend to be. And that can be a dangerous situation. So that's both the resiliency and the weakness of the mm, internet. Right. Everybody has the capacity to sort of like insert themselves at many of these levels, right, of these layers of this complex system and kind of do what they will. I think like actually a really great example of that recently were all the uh, the BGP hijacks uh, that were yeah, happening to the crypto right. sites lately, right? When you so a BGP, right, the border gateway protocol is this is this part of the internet that that informs routers who owns what slices of cyberspace of cyber territory cyber areas right and of course you can add right your own you can claim your own little little space of the cyber world if you will Mm -hmm. of cyberspace right literally a metaphor of land because it is far more vast than physical space at least on the earth maybe not the whole universe but the earth but it also right is simply a claim and someone else can make a similar claim or change the belief of others about who belongs in that space. And so that makes it very resilient because a lot of people can have sort of like their fingers in the pie, right? But it also makes it dangerous because you have to trust those actors. So a lot of cybersecurity is around understanding roots of trust, which is not that different from the physical world. And this fundamentally makes the internet really flexible and that flexibility 
also can be one of its one of its security shortcomings. So I think I would say that is the most important thing, especially in the context that we're talking today of digital security and cyber warfare. That's probably the most important thing to take away if you've never thought of the internet in that in that way before, right? It's it's that it is really just an agreement that a lot of people have knowledge about how to interact with. And the more knowledge you have about it, right, the more you can do with it, because it is just an agreement of how we're talking to each other and then making claims to one another. I love that analogy. And I love analogies in general. And that's one of the things I love about the class that you guys usually teach is usually bring these things back to some sort of metaphor or whatever to help you understand <laughs> it. And, I, and I, as you were thinking that my brain is just going crazy, like, oh, yeah, so, so like, talking is like Wi Fi, and like writing is mm-hmm. like Ethernet. And and then there's these layered protocols like, you know, so on top of English, there's maybe like poetry that has to rhyme. And then on top of that, there's haiku, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you know, and so, you know, could, you know, anyway, you could really go a long way with that. With that. Yeah, no, I mean, and, and it's very relevant too, right? Like, I mean, one in one of our uh, classes, for example, our DNS workshop, we build a alternate DNS route, right, which is a fancy way of saying that we make our own root DNS server so that we can determine what the top level domains should be, right? Forget .com, .mil, mm. .edu, .org, .net, or whatever. Like all, all those are, are the canonical, the conventional, like the well-known like .coms or like the, the, you know, the top level, the TLDs, the top level domains. But those are all just choices that somebody made, right? And yeah. then we all agreed to it. Right. So like we could also, like at anyone at any time can say, oh, I don't agree to that. Now you're not going to change anyone else's experience of the internet if you don't agree to it and go live, you know, and go, go do your own thing over there. But if you go do your own thing over there, you can build the identical infrastructure, right? From a from a from a like a from a spec level, from a specification perspective, mm-hmm. right? And just have different TLDs, different top level domains. So you can make, you know, we, we make a dot workshop domain, for example, which doesn't exist as far as I know, right. anyway, um, in the canonical DNS route. But again, you have the same power to do that. And as long as other people, and this is the key, as long as other people point their DNS resolvers, right, their software to your DNS root server, then you have created a new DNS root. And you can now, you know, operate using those other names simply by declaring it so, because the internet is an agreement about communication. That's it. Right. Okay, so the Biden administration just issued another warning uh, mm-hmm. about potential cyber attacks by Russia in retaliation uh, for the global financial sanctions, you know, tit for tat kind of thing. What sorts of precautions should we be taking right now, given that, you know, as maybe as consumers, maybe as citizens, yeah. you know, potentially, potentially as employees of companies that might be a target of a cyber attack? What do you think? <laughs> what, what attacks, in your opinion, may be most likely and which attacks, you know, might have the most significant consequences? Yeah. Oh, there's a lot of questions in there. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I mean, the anticlimactic answer to this is that, like, you know, everything that we've been saying about digital security just applies, right? So, right. like, what, this is right. really the, like, you know, hey, all, remember all that stuff that we were talking about, about, like, you know, making sure that, like, all the bases are covered, like, the basic stuff. Like, you got to update your software, you got to make sure your passwords are not being reused, et cetera, like, use a password manager, this kind of stuff. All those basic, like, fundamental 101 level things that are maybe a little annoying, <laughs> yeah. but um, but are but really are kind of like a step one sort of thing. That, that first of all, I think is, like, let's just... just it's worth reiterating. Yep. In fact, um, I don't know if this is what you mean about the the Biden administration's issued another warning, but I, I do know that uh, CISA, right, the Cybersecurity Infrastructure and Security Agency, has a new program, uh, recent program that they launched actually when when the tensions with Russia started becoming more pronounced, um, called Shields Up. 
And the yes. CISA Shields Up program, yeah, is um, basically a, a portal, like a bulletin from the government to anyone who, you know, operates any kind of service. And of course, they're targeting primarily enterprises and business services and, and of course, federal um, federal agencies and critical infrastructure uh, providers. So like, you know, the, the electrical grid and, you know, uh, water treatment plants and this sort of stuff. But also enterprises, businesses, and this can apply to everybody, right? They're, right. they're, not, they're not limiting this. Right. Their Shields Up uh, bulletins have for now weeks basically just been reiterations of all this same stuff. It's like, mm. hey, you remember like we told you that we told you to patch your, you know, your your Citrix servers, or remember like you know we said please make sure that you you have your, your firmware up to date on your routers. Like, please do that. Like for right. real, we mean it this time. Right, right, right. <laughs> right. <laughs> so, so you know, again, so it's a, so it, in the anticlimactic way to, to describe this is like you know you're if you're paying attention to this which maybe your listeners are which is lovely and you're actually doing the thing where you know you've got your some home wi-fi router or something you're you know that 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 uh, your isp gives you right some box your isp gives you just make sure that it is actually up to date right right that's probably the most important thing that you can do from like a, a network right defense level and the reason for this actually the reason that's actually important not just for enterprises of course absolutely for enterprise for business continuity is is you know is going to be the thing they're worried about but also just for home users right and i think a lot of people forget this from the context of like cuz the context of cyber war is a little bit different than the context of of a of a of a hot you know uh, you know with some dropping bombs and such right is that it's not geographically limited, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, like, right. you—if you have, like, what was a recent one? The Microtech. Uh, there was a. There was some Microtech router thing. Like, yeah, like for, back from like 2018 or 2017 or something. Like, it was like four years old or something. But there was some botnet that was continuously exploiting these old Microtech routers, and like that's only possible, right? Because those routers haven't been updated right. in four years. Yep. And the point that I'm trying to bring here is that like, if you have one of those devices, right, you might be part of a cyber attack right. and not even know it, right? Right. And so if you care, and again, hope people do, um, about protecting, honestly, all countries, right? This is not, this is not right. limited to, to one or other. You don't know who's going to be commandeering your device. But like, just keeping your firmware up to date on your router, just keeping your software up to date on your computer, right? Like that kind of stuff is actually, that's what CISA means when they say shields up, yeah. right? It, it doesn't necessarily have to be more complicated than that. And the reason it's important is because you could be used as a proxy, as a, as a, as, you know, as a reflection, right, point for an attack that you don't even know that you're part of if you don't maintain the devices that, that you have. And you know, I understand this is not necessarily the easiest thing for um, some people. A lot of people have, like, for example, old Android phones, and vendors aren't keeping mm-hmm. them up to date, and this kind of yeah. stuff. So that, that's that can be that can be difficult. But you know, you know, if if you have the ability to do these sort of basic steps that we've been saying for ever now, um, the best time would have been a year ago. The next best time is now uh, to right. do this. Well, and I and I think and one of the points I wanted to bring home is that is that corporations are made of people. And and so a lot of people think, especially if you work for a medium to large size company, oh, I've, we've got departments that do that. We've got a security department. We've got an IT department that they do security. So I'm, I'm not worried about it. But at the, at the end of the day, a lot of social engineering attacks uh, and other attacks are against the weakest link. And that could be anybody in the company, which means that every it's everybody's kind of responsibility to understand this to some degree and to not yeah. and to not have bad passwords and not give out information over the phone to somebody they don't absolutely know who they're talking to. Yep. I mean this is very like World War II era like loose lips sync ships, Exi- right? Like Absolutely, yes. Information absolutely. is not like a uh, it's it's not constrained by the physical world, right? And that's that's the main difference that makes this hard from a cyber theater perspective. Now, again, if you are like, you know, 
in a situation where you're being actively physically bombed, right? Yeah. Like they're very different things you've got to concern yourself with. And I think also right. it's important to remember so that we're not just freaking people out, I guess, um, <laughs> that like once you start dropping bombs, like once bombs start dropping, right, the notion of going to a cyber front is a little bit moot because mm-hmm. you've got a, a, a very different radius of you can almost think of it as like you're you're attacking at a lower level of the stack. It's like Maslow's right? Maslow's hierarchy of needs, right? I mean, there's you're at a different level at this point, right? Yeah, the advice to like you know Ukraine is 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 very different than an advice than the advice to like an American citizen. For we right have uh, in 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 America, the best thing that we can do to be helpful in this context is, as I was mentioning, all the things that we're already doing, all the anticlimactic things, right? To make sure that you're not part, you're not commandeered in some way. Mm-hmm. However, right, like the threat on us is not nearly the threat as it is on them. Right. And this also relates to like, you know, what what you should do, how you should think about uh, uh, the attacks on, on physical infrastructure and stuff and communication networks and this sort of thing. Um, because like, we're not getting geolocated to find our location to get bombed. Right. right, and that's actively happening there. Right. So there's a lot of different things that you need to, to concern yourself. But this is the this is the distinction that that that's worth drawing. Right, is that notice in a hot war scenario, the physical terrain, right, the physicality of it is part and parcel of the calculation. Whereas the absence of that limitation is the front and center consideration for us. Right. Mm-hmm. That's the distinction to, to make clear in one's mind. Well, let's, let's talk about that a little bit. And, and, and I want to talk about the, the war from both sides. And let's start with the Ukrainian side. For them, obviously, there's a lot of physical danger, but there's also infrastructure danger. And so, you know, Internet access is essential in times of crisis. And for the rest of us that, you know, maybe that's severe, severe weather events or natural disasters of other sorts. Yeah, um, totally. But, you know, obviously war, you know, so you know, kinetic war. So for the, for the citizens of Ukraine, access to the internet has been impacted by these things, you know, damage to physical facilities or power outages yep. or, you know, or maybe even to denial of service attacks, which is the cyber realm. But what sort of tools and techniques, you know, can we use in these sorts of emergency situations right. for access to the internet? And let's say if you were prepping, if you were, you know, thinking ahead and you're saying, oh, this is real, it actually could go sideways. If I had time and money, <laughs> You know, what sort of things might I do ahead of time right. to prepare for some extreme circumstances? Yeah, what's in what's in my go bag, right? Yeah, that's right. That what you want to know. Yeah, <laughs> what's yeah. In my go bag. Well, first well, okay. have a go bag, and then what's in it? <laughs> right, right, right. Yeah. So for those who aren't aware, like the go bag is 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 the idea of a prepared right uh, a satchel or some sort of like you know package of things that you use in an emergency. Um, and, and again, this depends on an emergency. So like you know when I when I lived in San Francisco, I remember there were a lot of uh, PSAs around like here's how to prepare for an earthquake, right? And again, mm-hmm. in like a uh, when I was out in uh, the the Midwest and and um, tornado right the tornado cones right. it was all about it was all about tornadoes um, and then of course down in, in the Gulf you've got you got flood warnings and things like this right so it sort of depends on your on your area um, that being said your your threat model maybe exactly that's what I was going to is that right. right depending on where you are right you have a different a different different needs of this kind and then again that's that's true here um, as well there's a couple of uh, facets that I think are particularly worth pointing out. Which, which I'll get to in a second, um, that, make, that make things different when you have, like, different than a natural disaster, right? When you have an actual adversary who's reacting right. to your actions, you need a very different sort of set of things. And for instance, let's say, right, you want comms, right, in a natural disaster scenario. Well, ham radio has been like a really, really popular and really uh, enduring, right, means right. Yeah. of doing that. I remember back in um, 
the uh, 20, 2011, I think it was, with the uh, Arab Spring situation, right? There was a lot of people that were routing around internet censorship using just regular old fax lines. And mm. again, there were long-range hams, right, that were, that were communicating to get around uh, internet blocks and this sort of thing. But again, that's a very different situation than what we see now in Ukraine, where ham radio is very easily triangulated. And mm. so you don't necessarily want to do that right? Because you'll make yourself, you make your position known. And if you're in a hot war situation like they are, then your physical location is very, very important to protect Mm. for literally life and death reasons, right? And so you don't necessarily have access to the same mechanisms of maintaining Mm -hmm. uh, internet, right? Even Starlink, stuff like this, right? And I think you mentioned something about Starlink before we started talking, but like, you know, even Starlink, things can be geolocated, right? Because it's all, it's all just radio emissions at, Mm -hmm. you know, at the end of the day. Starlink, for what it's worth, is... I don't know if this is like commercially available yet, but they have a roaming mode. So one of the pieces of advice that I've been hearing around this is turn that on. It's like buried deeply in some in some firmware config or mm. another, but it allows you to like basically put a Starlink device right on your truck or on your car or whatever, and actually be driving around, mm. and it will it will hop almost a little bit like a like a cell like a cell signal, right. a cell tower, um, so that you maintain connectivity. Because I think for the commercial ones right now, uh, the the, one, the way they're selling in the U.S. is they're stationary. They don't have this roaming that would turn on. They connect to a right connect uh, to an endpoint, and then they stay. And you have to keep it there. Real quick, for those, Starlink is Elon Musk's um, oh, yes. <laughs> uh, satellite-based communication system that has been launching many, many satellites, to the, much to the consternation of stargazers. Yeah. But, but yeah, situations like this, it could be crucial. Well, right. So we call that SATCOM, right? Satellite mm-hmm. Communications. CISA and the Department of Homeland Security have also been putting out warnings about SATCOM attacks Mm. for exactly this reason, right? Like satellite communications um, are harder a little bit to to geolocate, right, than just Mm. CC band radio kind of stuff. And they potentially, right, have a much better... Uh, they have they have much better bandwidth. Like they're they're better devices, right? Mm. Um, and so they're really really important for having um, a backup method of accessing the internet. Um, as long as, of course, you can connect out to right. right. Like you're not getting jammed in some in some way. So anyway, so so my point is is that these are like if you have access to these sorts of devices, right? Like then definitely you're going to want to consider that as like a first mode of mm-hmm. of access. But the situation matters again if you are trying to anticipate an adversary's reactions to your actions. Such as, for example, if I use this, am I going to be geolocated and fucking bombed? Right. Sorry, can I use that word? <laughs> I was like, that's, that's a, it's a, it's a, you know, it's a, yeah. it's a, it's a risk. Then, then you have very different, uh, you have very different things in your go bag. So yeah. there's that. Is what I will say. Now, in general, though, this is all about just thinking ahead, and that's yep. true for both the both the adversary scenario and the natural disaster scenario. Uh, so things like making sure that you've got power is a thing that I think people mm-hmm. don't necessarily think about too much mm-hmm. um, when they think about these comms, because like these devices will eventually run out of electricity, right? right? And so when I talk about thinking ahead, one thing that comes to mind, and then I do often, is just think about how, like, what you need for the things that you need. And then ask yourself that same question five times, right? So, okay, I need internet. What do I need for internet? Well, I need power. Okay, what do I need for power, right? Mm-hmm. And then just keep keep on that rabbit hole. Um, and so this could be like, you know, a an extra battery pack if it's not, if you're not expecting a long, a, mm-hmm. a long outage. Mm-hmm. It can be a solar panel, right? Mm-hmm. One of those travel solar panel things. Those can take a while to charge, but again, depending on your scenario, you can leave it out, right? Or uh, in, I know hikers use this a lot, right? right. To charge right. their phones. That's also useful, right? In the context of a go bag, even if you're not hiking, right? Mm-hmm. If it's, in other words, you might buy it for the context of, well, I'm going out camping, but 
you might not be going out camping. You might just put it in your go bag, make sure it's charged every three months or so, right? And then have a source of power. And that's a step ahead, right? Thinking ahead a little bit beyond just, well, I'm going to need this electronic device with me, right? And what I want to have access to in that sense. So, I mean, I guess my point is like, it really is about thinking one step ahead or rather taking care of the thing that is immediate, right? And then taking the next step before you get there. So this example of, right, I'm going to need my phone. Okay, what do I need around me to have my phone? I need power. What do I need, right, to have power? I might need a generator. I might need like solar. I might need solar panels, et cetera. This process is what disaster planning is about. On the other side, on the Russian side, it's a different matter. The access to the internet there is being restricted by the government, uh, not through physical yeah. bombs blowing up buildings, but you know, the government is actually trying to interfere with the access to the internet and, you know, in an effort to control the messaging around the war and, you know, perhaps suppress some dissent. What sort of techniques do repressive regimes use to filter or block access to the global internet? And, you know, how might citizens in these countries bypass or work around these restrictions? Yeah. So the good news on all this is that like this has been a topic of much research, right, mm-hmm. and a lot of development for many, many, many years. A lot of it was, was I think you know made made more popular, well known from two things. One, of course, is the Great Firewall of China, mm-hmm. and the second has been the Snowden leaks from 2013. Right. And both of those scenarios, right, I think, really pierced the public's. I would say indifference or perhaps lack of awareness, mm-hmm. right, around things like surveillance um, and censorship, because the two are actually very, very tied, closely tied together, right? right? You cannot censor what you do not surveil, mm, right? You right. must, you, you, it's, it's impossible by definition, right? If you're, if you're going to censor something, it means that you know something about what you are blocking. And so that means you have to be, right? You have to be able to sense it, be aware of it. And so a lot of anti-surveillance technology is also very useful as anti-censorship right? technology because it's all about creating a situation where you are hiding or obscuring the source and or the destination right, of a given message right. to have a communication with some endpoint. Um, and so making that a little bit less abstract, one way to say this is all tools that are about getting around blockades when they are information tools, like the internet, work by blinding the sensor to something about your message, whether that be who is sending it, right, the identity of the sender or who is receiving it, the identity of the recipient, or the content of the message, mm-hmm. right? So not so so hiding um, what you are saying. We often think about that as as like you know privacy or encryption, or maybe your your reader uh, readers, sure readers, <laughs> your listeners, viewers. I don't know. It, media consumers are familiar with the term end to end encryption, right? Mm-hmm. So like that that's about the the hi- hiding of some data, typically the, the, the content of a message, right? Mm-hmm. But my point is that all of these tools, all of the, all of the ways to get around these sort of uh, restrictions, right, on communication are about obscuring something about your message mm-hmm. to the person making that thing be blocked. Now, mm-hmm. we're assuming in this context that you have an, a, a route, right, to your other, to your destination. You have right. a way to, to say something to somebody, but it's being impeded in some way. Right. And again, that's different than, for example, you are literally cut off from an infrastructural standpoint. Right. You're in, you, like, you don't have a physical way of getting a message out, right? That is right. a different right. kind of blockade. And again, in the context of cyber war, right, we are typically thinking about infrastructure that exists that is inaccessible, 
Whereas in the context of a physical war, a kinetic war, right, then you just might not have cell tower to connect to because it might it just right. might not be there. So that's so that's going to be a different a different scenario. You have different you know different um, you'll have to do different things in in those situations. But as long as we're living in software, right, people will often hear about tools like Tor. Um, as an anti-censorship tool. It's also, mm-hmm. of course, an anti-surveillance tool and a pro-privacy tool. They'll hear about VPNs, similar mm-hmm. concept, right? They'll also, hopefully, right, be hearing about things like Signal, which is like a messaging tool that I wish was more popular um, yeah. <laughs> now in that region of the world for exactly this right. this reason than some other ones. But in general, right, this comes back to, <laughs> again, the perhaps anticlimactic advice from CISA, which is all that stuff that we've been saying and that we've been teaching about all this thing. <laughs> like, remember all that? Like, you know, again, the best time to have been to have been getting all these things, right, and sort of becoming aware of how to use them, and they're not actually that hard to use, is... A year ago or, you know, whenever you first heard about them. And the next best time is now. And this is exactly why. Because the first thing a sensor is going to block, right, is the download page (laughs) to the tool Mm. that you need. Right. right? The second thing they're going to block, right, because prevention, of course, is worth an ounce. uh, An ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. That's the one. That's the one I'm going for. Thank you. Right. And that's that's the scenario from the sensor's side of things. So so all those tools that I mentioned, right, Tor, VPNs, Signal, right, those are going yep. to be the real gold standard of how to of how to do this or how to get around certain blockades. They have different properties and they have different user experiences, but they are and have been now for a good you know decade or so the tools right like the state of the the the, the, the tools yeah. of the trade the state of the art. And it almost matters a little bit less about which specific ones you know Signal and Tor of the of that set of three for example are two specific implementations. Right of a given technology, messaging technology in Signal's case, onion routing or the like, you know, anti-surveillance, anti you know, censorship, censorship circumvention technology in Tor's case, and then in VPN's case, it's it's kind of like a, a mix of the utility of Tor with with uh, with it, there, there's more commercial options in that in that arena, right, right, because they are like they are typically sell, sold as like you know you can buy a VPN subscription um, almost right. like you can buy a Netflix right subscription and get access to a service, but what matters more is that you understand when to use that tool and in like what context, like in other words, if you're in, again, to use a physical analogy, right? If you're building a cabinet, you want to know which tool to pick up when you have, when it's time to put the, put the, put the feet on the cabinet. Right. And how that's Mm -hmm. different than if you're trying to, sand down the top, right? You're going to use right. different tools for that. You want to know which tool to use in what circumstance. That's not the easiest thing necessarily for lay people because there's so many tools and there's a lot of like clickbait right. out there. But what matters more is that concept than the specific tool. In other words, what matters more to me is that you use a password manager, right? Not which password manager you use. What matters more right. to me is that you use a VPN if you are going to, if you, if you need that, right? Not exactly which, which VPN to use, again, given some caveats with your specific situation. What matters more to me, right, is that you're using something like Signal, right? A secure messenger of some variety. And again, secure here is like a really magic hand wavy word, um, which we can spend probably whole, and we do spend whole workshops like describing and talking through and like really deconstructing. Um, But the idea, right, is that like case in point, I would probably be more comfortable using iMessage, right, in Russia right now than I would any of like the... Like Facebook Messenger? Yeah, I mean, like, I mean... I, what I mean is that, is that like in Russia, you're not going to want to, depending on your 
allegiances, you are going to want to use technology that is not controlled by the Russian government. Right. And that's at least better than using technology that is controlled by the Russian government. That's right. worse, though, than using technology that doesn't rely on the benevolence of the operator to keep secure. Right. And so that's the, that last one is signal. Right. Signal, yeah. you can use, if you use signal, you're not relying on signal's benevolence to keep your data private. So that's kind of like the the hierarchy, right, of ways that I would think about that and, and tools that I would choose in this context. And the important thing is that you have an understanding of how to assess those tools more than it is important to figure out this is the specific tool that, that you need, right? Because you're going to be in a situation that's unique to you. And I can't give... And I don't want to give blanket advice to people in different situations because they're in different situations. Right. One of the things that's come up in the news a lot, probably because it's just exciting to talk about and gets head, uh, people clicking on headlines and watching the news, is this notion of the, Russia developing the capability to unplug, quote unquote, yeah. from the global internet. And you know, some people have called this a splinternet. So for the benefit of the audience... What does that mean exactly? How could Russia create its own internet? I mean, I guess you touched on this a little bit uh, earlier in the show. And then maybe how does that compare to the Great Firewall of China? Right. So, I mean, this, this, is, this is exactly what I was talking about in the beginning when I was saying, like, the, the benefit and the resilience of the internet, right, is also the thing that makes it susceptible to all the human frailties, that humans have, which are yeah. right, like when a when you know if 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 you are constantly you know mean to me and you know don't add value to my life, right? I will cut the ties to you and we will disconnect, right? Mm. Like in, in like a social way, in a relational way. The internet is the same thing. The the more value we add to one another's lives, the more it it, it becomes useful to connect. People interconnect, and they do that with their machines, right? just as they do that with their personal and intimate relationships. And so it is equally possible to disconnect, to isolate yourself, right? And still have an infrastructure. Now, you won't necessarily have access to the things that are not done by you, unless, I think you mentioned earlier this analogy, this, this, uh, this, this notion of uh, Russians downloading Wikipedia, mm. right? And so Wikipedia, right, is not entirely hosted in Russia. Therefore, if Russia disconnects, they will not have Wikipedia. And so there's been an effort to copy, right? Right. And, and recreate, right? Because it's easy to do in a digital context. You can simply copy things and you're not removing the original, right? It is a copy. And then you will still have it because you, ha you physically have it, right? All these things on the internet are actually things. We don't think of them as physical things. We think of them as this sort of like, again, sort of ephemeral stuff in the cloud, right? And all of, even those, that, that analogy, that cloud is something that, that you, can bear, you can't really touch and it's not really tangible. Mm. But in reality, mm. it is, right? Like Wikipedia is made up of bits, electrons, right, that, are, that exist somewhere physically in time and space. And so if you collected all of them, right, and made a copy of all of them, then you would have it and you wouldn't necessarily need to be connected to the rest of the internet to have access to that same data. Mm -hmm. So that is what they want to do, or at least that is what they have signaled that they have been testing. I think back in maybe it was 2019 or 2020, there was this very well observed test that they did when yep. they cut off themselves from the rest of the internet for, I think it was just a few, a few short hours, you know, but unadvertised BGP routes and actually, you know, started blocking connections outside of the, the, the routers at the edges of their country to see if it would work, to see if yeah. like the stuff that they ran, in other words, their own infrastructures, right? If it would stay, it would, if it would still work. One of the things that, 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 
creates problems for, right, is all the sources for all the software that they use. In other words, updates, mm, right? right? Yep. New new versions of things, right? right. And this is, this is where the interconnectivity of a global supply chain kind of comes into the like cyber realm in the way that right now people are hearing a lot about for the first time, I guess, right? Due to the whole COVID stuff and all the supply chain shortages there, like a lot of the physical materials that we have come from, that we have in the States comes from, comes from other countries. And so we rely on channels of, right? Like import and export to the right, country, right, those right. connections. Well, that's also true for digital bits, digital things, right? Like, for right. example, if you're using Mozilla Firefox, right, where are you going to get your next version from? It's going to be from Mozilla because that's the vendor of your software. So if you right. cut yourself off from the internet, right, then one of the things you're going to need, if you still want access to the web, even if it's not the same websites, is a web browser. And that web browser better work, <laughs> right? Yeah. And so there's also been, right, like attempts for them to build their own versions of things like web browsers. They can start with a fork, right, off of the, uh, the uh, initial copy that they have already, but then they're going to start to diverge. And that's a huge amount of work. China has right. also been oh, working yeah. up uh, on a fork of, uh, of like a completely separated operating system for their computers that are, that are right. not the Linux kernel, that are not Windows, right? Um, and so this is what, when people talk about Splinternet, I think shallowly or cursorily, the, the, the discussion is about network topology, right? What part of the computing infrastructure is connected to what other part? And then if you separate those into multiple different like country level completely disconnected internets, you have a so-called splinter net. But it's actually way more complicated than that. It's actually about all these other additional right sources of the software and the firmwares and the manufacturing that is necessary to create an infrastructure that's completely self-contained. And I don't actually think that at that level we'll ever get there because it's just too much work. And it's also yeah. too easy right, to already take a lot of the open source work that's been done and just sort of like continuously rebuild or remerge you know, on, on on those, like you know, build on top on top of that. So there are efforts to this for for this, and maybe in some very specific cases, like state actions, and 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 when you have a very highly sensitive system, like you just don't trust, you know, the thousands and thousands of developers in the Linux kernel, you just don't trust, like you know, a foreign company. You might want a couple of your machines to run a very specific, custom built operating system, for instance, mm-hmm. but to do that for an entire country, I think is, I don't know, that just seems like such is such an expensive effort. And, you know, yeah. especially in this context, right, there's other things that Russia needs to spend its, needs, needs to, needs to focus its economy on. So yeah. this is the new Cold War in a certain way, right? This mm. is the will they, won't they <laughs> um, yeah. scenario. And, you know, it's, it's not exactly mutually assured destruction, thank goodness. Yeah. But it is a, well, you know, how costly will it be? And I think for what it's worth, like, you know, no one has really good answers to this because this has never happened before. Like the idea of disconnected from the global internet for a long time on purpose has never been tried. It's been done in short bursts, right? Mubarak Mm, and the Arab Spring, mm -hmm. right? Like again, the Great Firewall of China as a filtering, but not disconnecting, right? right? Like I mean, one one really important thing to point out the Great Firewall of China is that it's all about choice. It's all the it's all the choices of the sensors about what gets through. They're not actually disconnected from the internet. They're just very strict. They have very what we would call in the network space, literally a fascist firewall, right? Which is just to say a very like 
unilateral decision-making device about what gets through and what, what, gets, what doesn't. But they care a lot about international development. They care a lot about international business. And so one thing that does get through and that Chinese users sometimes use is GitHub, actually, right? Because mm. GitHub is so valuable from the perspective yeah. of what's hosted there and, and the activity that happens there from a software development perspective, from an open source perspective, that GitHub is, is, you know, is one of the least fascistically uh, surveilled sites even in, the, hmm. even in China, for that reason, and that speaks to right the, this combination of the social and the technical uh, interplay, right? When you talk, when you start talking about disconnecting from the internet, how and how you might do that. So there's a lot. I don't know. There's just like a lot of things to consider there. And one thing that we even haven't talked about yet is is the notion of trust routes, right? I mentioned this also in the beginning that so far, um, a lot of things I've men- been mentioning are things like the the ways in which these are all communicative agreements. The next question there, the next thing beyond that is, okay, so if we're, if we're communicating and we're agreeing about how to communicate, the next question is, how do we trust what's being said? Mm-hmm. And that's, that's a perhaps even more interesting way to think about a splinter net, because in Russia's case, they have been, I think also you pointed out earlier, right, like a little bit before we started talking, they've been getting shunned by everybody yeah, <laughs> in right. the world, basically almost, except for China, unfortunately. We'll hopefully we'll hopefully mm-hmm. get that fixed. But what that also means is that they no longer want their citizens to trust the rest of the world. And so they have to, in addition to all this other infrastructure, right, their own DNS routes, you know, all, all their own software source you know, vendors and updates and this sort of thing, they also are asking their citizens, I'm asking, it's a very generous way to say that but they're right. requiring right citizens install root certificates in their browsers so right. that websites that are owned and operated by russian officials and official channels can still be trusted which is to say will not raise errors when browsed to right mm-hmm. by mm-hmm. software not made by russia right. and so that's a whole other uh, aspect to an infrastructure of a splinter net that is you know, often not talked about because so much focus is given the, to the network topology. Well, and, and I think, and you were alluding to a lot of this, I think what we've discovered both with the pandemic and now with this conflict is how interconnected we have all become and how, and how interdependent we have all become. Uh, yeah. It didn't used to be this way. I mean, there used, uh, you know, countries used to be able to kind of stand alone, and either they had enough resources on their own, or maybe they got a few resources from other places. But otherwise, they could, they could, <laughs> or they, you know, uh, you stand... know colonize other places to get more resources. <laughs> right. There's also right, that, right, right, right. <laughs> exactly. But, uh, but you know, at this point, with the the growth of the internet in particular, we have become so interconnected and so interdependent. It's it's it is sort of a mutually assured destruction kind of a thing. If you, it's hard to pull out of. And so therefore we all depend on each very, other. We very. need to kind of work together, you know, and we don't have the luxury of saying, I'm, I'm going to take my ball and go home. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You, you can't do that anymore. So yeah. 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 I um, mean, this is like, you know, there's a lot of pessimism I think around, I'm going to philosophize for a second. Cause I think mm-hmm. this is a good place for it. And, and, I, and, and, it might also inject some optimism in this conversation, which has been a very, very, very scary. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. The world has been very stressful lately, <laughs> but, um, yes. um, but I do want to point out, right. Like that, that this notion of the, the requirement of interconnectivity, there's, there's a way in which this is bad and hard, you know, uh, the anti-globalist, uh, anti-globalization movement, for example, is I think important and points to a lot of the ways that we aren't really 
uh, as a species and as a society writ large, right, doing justice to the global south, to poor people, right, to people of color, a lot of individuals are getting hurt by this globalization. And at the same time, and I'm not trying to diminish the the pain of, of, of any of, of an individual any, any, in any situation here, but it is true, as, as you say, this interconnectivity that rel- that forces us in a way to have to figure out how to work together, right? It promotes a certain kind of peace by mm-hmm. requiring the awareness and knowledge that there is no exile, right? You are right. going to have to work with these people. You are going to have to interact in some way, right, with people who cannot just, you know, take their ball and go home, unless you are going to obliterate them from the face of the earth, right? Like those are your two, right. three, two options. And so I think the fear, the rightful fear is that someone like Putin in this case, right, is just out for destruction. That's, and if, you know, that, that's something you can't work with. But anything right. short of that, right, when you have no other place to go, you must start, like you must, right, if you are going to move forward in any way, you must start considering what diplomacy, what transformative justice, what restorative justice looks like, because you cannot simply lock someone away. You cannot simply right, say you are no longer part of the global community. And that is actually, again, if we are able as a species to get out of this you know, ridiculous, in my opinion, um, uh, notion of deservedness for basic humanity, because you are contributing to some GDP numbers or something, which I think is silly, um, Mm. as like a measure of value, then, you know, we can start thinking about abolishing these, 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 these relatively unhelpful systems of, of isolation and punitive responses to everything. And so from a geopolitical global sense, like this is the equivalent, right? Like this kind of interconnectivity, there's a way in which this is a little bit like um, an attempt at forcing people or could be an attempt. I think if we, if we, if we, if if our leaders were a little bit less, um, uh, a little bit less uh, in my view, capitalistic, were able to, to, to approach things in that way has, has a global um, analogy to what, a lot of local activists uh, would call restorative justice or transformative justice instead of um, a punitive criminal incarceration system where you're literally just telling people you can no longer be part of society because that's not possible at a global scale anymore. Right. All right. Let me ask you one specific question before we kind of wrap up here. And that Mm. is, you know, you talked a lot about, you know, things, companies, Microsoft, Apple, Google that are global companies, but they, they're, Really, they're they're United States companies. They're certainly not Russian companies. Sure. But there is at least one Russian company that people might know of uh, that's very (laughs) relevant to what we're talking about now, and that's Kaspersky. Mm -hmm. Uh, And Kaspersky Labs is a you know is a security research firm, but they have products that like an antivirus software product that is actually pretty popular. Yeah. And and there's for many years people have been saying, oh, you can't trust Kaspersky comes from Russia. But you know, for a lot of people, like, yeah, that's you know, black helicopter, tinfoil, hot stuff, whatever there, it's a business. I can, you know, I can trust them, but now, (laughs) now maybe, you know, maybe people have a slightly different take on that. So first of all, what's your take on specifically, you know, would you be worried that, that because it's originating in Russia, that there might be a problem downloading an update from Kaspersky today or in, in just generally, I mean, there are other companies too, like Yandex, which most of us don't use, but that's a, you know, that's a browser in Russia. There's TikTok, which is based in China. They got a lot of blowback because people didn't trust them. Huawei, you know, that was another company that got, so, you know, what's your kind of take on, do you need to worry about products and services that originate in repressive regimes. Yeah. So 
I, I do have a take on this, actually. I, it might be a bit of a hot take, so we'll see how spicy people think this is. <laughs> but um, I, I have sort of a two-pronged two-pronged to this. Number one is just on a um, back to that, like, you know, do the basic things advice. Mm-hmm. I don't run antivirus software, and I don't actually recommend mm-hmm. it. Um, mm-hmm. And that, I think, has, you know, mostly because it, it in many situations causes, in my opinion, more problems then it's worth yep. if you I, are I doing yeah exactly okay cool so then maybe not so spicy on that on that front which is great well i, I think i'm an outlier there too but i've said the same thing to my audience so yeah yeah i mean it's just it's one of these things where it's like you know it 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 there's a concept in cybersecurity, right called in security generally right called an attack surface which is just to say mm-hmm. how many things do you really how many things can an attacker touch right and the the more things that they can touch the more access they may have right mm-hmm. may have the, the more possibility there is statistically that something will go wrong in that so by adding an antivirus software you are increasing an attack surface and historically there have been many problems in yes. antivirus software yes aside from the entire notion of like going to a website and being hey you're like this you've got a virus like install this to like you know that is a spoofed a spoofed virus alert right that is actually mm-hmm. a virus itself right. um so 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 if you are doing those basic shields up things then my advice is you probably don't need to add antivirus software mm-hmm. to that that's really been not um like it, the 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 perception that you need antivirus software is one that was it is sort of like a holdover right from a right. previous era of right. of computing if you are keeping your software up to date right if you are doing those basic shields up things you have you already have the majority of protections that you need plus by the way if you're using windows in particular windows defender is basically yep. antivirus and free right and very good and very um, good for what it yeah right and i'll i'll take that one step further and then this is an analogy i like to make to me is when i think about antivirus software it to me it's like hiring a bodyguard this bodyguard mm-hmm. has to have full 100% access. They need to be able to know where your mistress is. They need to be able to know where you hide this, <laughs> where you hide the money under the bed. They need to know, you know, where you buy your drugs because, you know, at the end of the day, they're you contracted to protect you, and to do that, they need to know everything. They need to have all yeah, full access, precisely. But unlike a, a bodyguard, you can't make Kaspersky sign an NDA, right? I mean, and you, <laughs> right? I mean, you have to give them full access to do for them to do what they need, to, what they say they need to do, mm-hmm. but. There's no other mechanism you can enforce trust upon them like you can maybe with a, a physical living, breathing bodyguard. Right. Any program that you install, and this is sort of the second piece of this, right? It, it, you are effectively trusting implicitly um, mm-hmm. and possibly also implicitly into the future, depending on like, you know, <laughs> uh, A, what that software is and B, how much you keep updating it. Right. So there's that. Now, that being said, the second part of this, right, is, is if I were a member of the Chinese government, I probably wouldn't necessarily trust Microsoft Defender fully because right it's an american company and again this is we just talked about russia trying to splinter itself off and how much infrastructure it needs to create to do that Mm -hmm. um and so there's probably a good chunk of people who would trust kaspersky but not one of the other like mcafee or simintech right like Mm -hmm. other companies like the american antivirus companies for exactly the inverse reason so it really does depend on your the term i used earlier was trust root right like who, mm-hmm. where do you where do you base your trust basically so there's that that being said the other right like the, the thing to consider about any of these sources is that you are kind of in this like global mesh already mm. right and you know Kaspersky has a i mean they have a 
they have a pretty good reputation. I, yeah. I don't think that there is any necessary, uh, like you don't necessarily have to have malicious intent to, to be problematic, right. In one variety or another, mm-hmm. a really right. good example of this, right. Was like American companies very recently, very famously had this massive breach from solar winds, which was also yeah. a security company and a security company from the States. Right. <laughs> so mm-hmm. like our, so like when you're, if you're Russia, think about this, right. If you're Russia, um, and you know, the solar winds breach was attributed, I believe to Russian state actors. So the idea is like, why take over Kaspersky, right? When you have solar winds, <laughs> Yeah. Right. right. So like, again, it's about, it's, it's a about, you know, your level of trust, but B it's mostly about, right. Like you are not necessarily going to be attacked, right. Via the obvious mechanism, right. That's something mm-hmm. which is to say like a Russian company, right. Like you're, mm-hmm. you, you have to consider that even the NSA, right. Locally is, is, you know, we know from the Snowden leaks, right. Is, is opening um, shipments of, data center devices, right? And installing plants into that. Right, like they would do that to Cisco that. devices, yeah. Yeah, exactly, with Cisco devices. So like, you know, is it does, is it because it has a, you know, a Huawei like sticker on it? Is that why you're not going to trust it? Like that means mm. nothing actually, mm. right? So, so, in, so in other words, like I, I don't, I think the, I think the, the conclusion or like the punchline, right, to this is like, I don't really care <laughs> about mm. Kaspersky's level of trust because I'm doing all those basic things anyway, right? Mm. And those are the things that matter. So part of it is really just filtering out, right? And this is, again, that we talk a lot about in our cybersecurity classes is there's so much information coming at people that half the skill, if not more than half the skill, is what's the phrase about being wise, right? Like, you know, be, learning to uh, becoming, the wisdom is about learning what to ignore, Hmm. Right. Like that, that is, that is really important. And so hmm. by determining a realistic sense and getting a sixth sense for what's, for what you actually have to spend your limited amount of energy and like attention on, that's going to be way more valuable than, than concerning yourself with like a specific, right. Like brand. Right. Right. Yeah. Well, and I'll, I'll take that, I'll take that a little bit further in both a good and maybe paranoid ways. And that is, is for with big companies and companies of any size, Again, they're made up of people, and they're made up of groups within those, within those companies. So oh, it sure. could very well be that Kaspersky Labs, which is maybe the security research size, is is extremely trustworthy, and they and they have done great work. They've they've uncovered a lot of great security problems out there, and spread those with the and share yeah. those with the world. Yeah. But maybe the, the the portion of the company that makes this the AV software, maybe they're the ones that are subverted, or maybe there's one guy on there who's been subverted and which by the way could have like you said that there could also be one guy at mcafee that's actually a russian plant right yeah or a chinese plant but what that brings up and, and this has become a really big buzzword in security these days is what we call zero, zero trust, trust. Or, or trust and, and trust no one which is you know old security was what we like to call like m&m security where it was crunchy on the outside and soft on the inside <laughs> you know where you figure that you kind of trust once you're inside the corporate network everything's trusted everyone is trusted that's yeah. not true anymore because we've been burned too many times so we're trying to structure we're trying to engineer as best we can engineer ourselves out of the prop out of the trust problem by not trusting anything if where we can right so yeah so <laughs> right and, and like and, and it's it's what you know like a lot of things it's a misnomer um it, you know a lot of a lot of tech 
I think jargon is mm, poorly mm. named. I mean, they joke, right? One of oh, the sure. hardest things about technology is, is uh, naming things, mm, right? Yeah, I think right. What, there's, what's the joke? There's two, there's two, two super hard problems or three super hard problems in, in, in computing, right? One is uh, naming things. One is uh, cache and validation. And one is, uh, <laughs> right, like off by one errors or something. Right, or two, right, two right. wrong problems and then there's three. That's the joke. Right. Anyway, the point, yeah, but, but yeah, like you can't, like zero trust is not actually zero trust, right? What it is is this notion of the border between what's trusted and what's not trusted is overlapping and you and mm. everywhere, Right. 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 So, so it's it almost might be better to to call it zero trust means verify always is what it actually right. is about. Right. Mm-hmm. You have to eventually trust something, and this is about browser roots that you know Russia's asking, um, mm-hmm. requiring people to install. Right. There were discussions about doing something similar um, in Europe and Australia. Right. Oh, like yeah. yep. those are not purely oppressive regime tactics. Right. right. Those are about getting a different entity to be the thing that is implicitly trusted. And you as an individual might have very different opinions about what is trustworthy than you as a government, right? Right. And if you're not aware of how that works, then you are susceptible to that government or that that choice being made for you. So from our perspective, right, what matters is that you know that that's a choice someone is making, and it's certainly possible you will be okay with someone else making that choice. I mean, we, people make choices for us all the time, and that makes sense because that's how society functions, right? I mean, you can't I'll delegate literally, it, right? yeah, exactly. I mean, literally, it's infrastructure, right? Like you don't you don't think about the water treatment plant, but you still drink water from the faucet, right? That's infrastructure. Right. Right, someone yeah. else is making a choice about how to do that, and you trust them to some degree. Now, again. You might have, right, let me look at Flint, Michigan as a famous American (sighs) example, right? right? Like those are not always trustworthy people making trustworthy choices. But you will never know that unless you are made unhealthy because of it, hurt by it in some way, right? Or have done the research and done and made and and you know looked into the situation yourself. So at TLC, what we what we focus on is making sure that you are aware of where these choices are being made, right. what and how to audit those for yourself because you can. That's the thing. Mm, if right. you have a laptop, you have a computer, right? It's all there. Everything your computer does, every choice your computer is making, every instruction that it's running is actually literally at your fingertips if you have the knowledge to look at it. And so that's the thing that makes the digital world so much more, we think, potentially empowering than it is like you can't, like you can't actually go to the water treatment plant and like go, you know, ask people like how, I mean, I guess you can, but they won't let you in. <laughs> you know what right, I mean? Right, right. But like, there is like your laptop is there, right? Right. You can start, you know, opening the registry editor. You can like, you know, decompile a, a binary. Like you can look at the instructions that are being run and actually see what your computer is choosing to do. It's just about the knowledge to know where to look and how to interpret the things that you're seeing. All right. Well, that's a great segue into my very last question. And, <laughs> okay. And, and a perfect lead into this is if people do want to learn more about these things, if they want to understand these things better, uh, oh, yeah. where could work? Obviously, you're going to plug yourself, but and start <laughs> and, and start there by all means. But what other recommendations, what other resources might you recommend for people who want to learn more? Oh, gosh, there's so many. There's so much out there, right? So like, I mean, yes, obviously, you could go to techlearningcollective.com and sign up for a workshop or mm-hmm. many or our parties or in social events, as mentioned, if you're like local to New York City, and you want to come out and meet some of us in person. Um, mm-hmm. On May 7th, we're doing a queer hacker party, which is literally a Ooh. 
hacker party. I mean, it's like, imagine, you know, if you've ever seen Hackers from 1995, that movie where they've got that club and there's like rollerblading and stuff inside. Yeah. (laughs) So like, um, we're basically recreating that, but like, you know, in 2022 (sighs) and like way gayer. So (laughs) it's for real. Um, so, so the party is just, um, the party is called Hex 90, Mm. uh, which for the Techier, I think, of of your audience will be a very funny play on words. I hope I'll mm. leave that to uh, as a, as a as an exercise for the listener to to look up. Mm. But the point is, it's mm-hmm. a, a party called Hex ninety Overflow. Um, it'll be at Wonderville on on May seventh, and it's going to have you know DJs, live coders, music, dancing, drinks, and also the unique thing about our parties is that we install a local CTF, so a capture the flag competition, uh-huh. so you can actually try your hands uh, at bringing your laptop and hacking on some infrastructure that we install for Mm. real Mm -hmm. and all the tech tools and techniques that you'll need to progress through the game levels. It's basically a text adventure, cybersecurity themed game that we install at the party. Um, We teach all those skills that you need at the workshops at techlearningcollective.com workshops. So if that sounds fun to you, definitely come on out, you know, and, and I would, and I would encourage you to, because there's in our experience, no better way of learning this stuff than socially, which is to say with people who can show you things, right. who you can like work through problems together with, right? Like it's a very social environment. That's how I learned most of what I know. We like to call it community driven, mutual self-education. Um, mm. It mm-hmm. works very, very well. Yeah. Now, Nothing that we do there is secret. <laughs> so, like, it's not like, you know, you're going to be, like, uh, initiated into some sort of secret club. It's not like that at all. A lot of this stuff is available out on Wikipedia, YouTube. Um, there are great books about it, podcasts. Like, there's so much information out there. Some of the ones that I like and recommend, uh, if you are particularly interested, are, like, like uh, in in tools and techniques are look up some of these like lists of tools on, on GitHub. For example, there's like mm. lolbins, for example, is like a list of tools that are just about uh, windows binaries that exist that you can use for hacking purposes that live off. The, mm-hmm. So lol being like live off the land kind of thing, you know, and, and these are just good things to practice with vulnhub.com, for example, gives you like this series of virtual machines that you can, uh, download and run and try your hand at right for free basically mm-hmm. like little free ctf type stuff this is all like exercise based based things there's a lot of good books out there i don't i would hesitate to recommend a specific one because there's like mm. i mean other than perhaps yeah. yours <laughs> right for getting started <laughs> if you want to like that firewalls mm. don't stop dragons yeah yeah which which uh you know which 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 offers like a, a nice you you have a very good thirty thousand foot overview of, of a lot mm-hmm. of a lot of the, the basics there so like you know honestly literally search for some stuff and yeah, you know, sure. you'll find stuff. But again, the reason TLC exists is because a lot of people do that and then leave those searches feeling a little bit more confused. Our hope at TLC workshops is that you come to them and then like through the workshop leave being more prepared to read that stuff. So my advice is actually come to workshops before you do these other kind of searches. Once you do mm. that though, right? Once once you, once you have some exposure and some sort of like mental model to sort of hang your what, what you are hang your knowledge about what you are, you know, what what you're reading about. Then things like uh, podcast security now from the 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 Twit network for example is a long running yep. podcast and is very layperson lay friendly. Black mm-hmm. Hills Infosec for example does a bunch mm-hmm. of really good webinars on again hacking topics and things. There's a cryptogram from Bruce Schneier, right? Yep. That is really really good and he's been doing that for oh god almost like what 10 15 years now. A long um, time, yeah. Long long time. Really good newsletter. There's a DevOps newsletter um, that I like. What is it called? Um, ugh, maybe is it, is it just 
I'm forgetting the name of it now. I think it's a DevOps newsletter. Maybe it's just the DevOps newsletter. I'm not really sure. Hmm. Um, but it's about infrastructure tools and, and, and utilities and sort of the happenings and like, you know, cloud environments and like a lot of Kubernetes stuff and this sort of thing. That's a good resource if you're, if that's sort of a, a track that you're interested in. A lot of the a lot of the old school books also I would recommend um, if you haven't already checked out things like Code: The Hidden Language of Software and Hardware by oh, Charles Petzold. Book. Fantastic introduction, right? To just com- what computers are on a physical level. Then there's th- the, the you know, famous books though that there's what something, something some people call the Hacking Bible, right? The Art of Exploitation by uh, Jonathan. What's his name? Some Jonathan or another, another good book. But like again, it's not really. A lot of these books will say that they're like useful. Like, hey, you don't, you can read this book if you're a total beginner. And then they're like, so we assume that you know X, Y, and Z. And I'm like, well, then you're not really starting right. at the beginning. And like again, that's our point. You want that 101 to 201 bridge at a Tech Learning Collective workshop. If you come to, for example, our bare bones crypto class where we talk a little bit about the foundations of the cryptographic algorithms that we have today mm-hmm. right then you're going to leave that class ha- being able to read a blog post or a tutorial or uh you know bruce Schneier's applied cryptography in a, in, a, in a in a way where you'll retain more having mm-hmm. having come to the class so that's kind of our our goal i think a, a sup like supplementing and we do also recommend this very very explicitly literally when you have come to a workshop right we're constantly throwing resources at you and like i just did now actually right. um and and the point the point is that right you want to you want to mix and match these you don't want a one source but b the thing that you're not going to get from like a tutorial or a book is that really uh conceptual grounding in the thing that they're talking about so if you merge the two right because there's, again there's People have. I mean, there's so much written about this already. It's not going to be hard to find, um, and a lot of them are correct, which is say a lot of them are very accurate. They're just not very explanatory. Right. And so, if you can merge something like the technical reference guides that you might see on Wikipedia, the like detailed, detailed, detailed um, instructions of how a particular to- software works, like one of those O'Reilly books, right, on the topic that you're interested in, for example, SSH, the Definitive Guide, right, like is a thorough treatment of SSH, but it's not necessarily the best way to expose yourself to it so maybe our ssh workshop right is the thing you want to come to first and then then you can start reading the book and you'll have a much better understanding of what they're talking about that combination i think is the thing that is the most um effective for our students well thank you so much for coming on the show and and talking about the stuff it was always great talking to you i love taking your classes and so Mm. i'm good glad you have on the podcast yeah thanks i mean i hope this was helpful for like you know a wide range of people and again like i don't want to present myself as some sort of like you know geopolitical expert but a lot of the things that are going on right now right are the sorts of things that people are finally coming to realize is just a matter of preparation so we're here for that Thanks again to the Tech Learning Collective, not just for doing this interview, uh, but for doing what they do. They've got some really great stuff. Again, check out their site. It's techlearningcollective.com, all run together. Look at their schedule, uh, find one of their courses, and and, and take one. Really, it's a, it's a lot of fun, and it's <laughs> as you can tell, the classes do run long because they will sit there and talk and answer your questions as long as you need to. But the classes are usually small, so you get a lot of good, you get a lot of great interaction. Uh, it's, it's, it's a lot of fun. I highly recommend it. And if, well, if you're in New York City, I wish I was. If you were in New York City, uh, I would totally be going to that party. That sounds just like a riot. Also, if you wanted to support what these guys are doing, uh, you can donate directly on their website as well. So kind of related to some of these kind of prepper 
things that we were going over today. Uh, if you're interested, I wrote a blog article sometime back about how to prepare for a power outage that you might want to check out. There's a link in the show notes to that. Also mentioned that you can download all of Wikipedia if you really want to. If you know, if you want to have that available for the end times, <laughs> you can do it. I just kind of did it as an exercise to see if I could. It's big. It's like the the main English version, for example, with all the images is about 90 gigabytes. Uh, and I recommend that you use a torrent file for that so that, A, you can kind of participate and help to share this stuff around, and B, it's generally faster. Uh, if you know what that is, don't worry about it. You can just download it directly. It comes as a, a .zim file, with a ZIM, which I'd never heard of, honestly, but there's a tool that you can use called Kiwix, K-I-W-I-X, and that's the website where you can go to download this stuff. And they also have a tool so you can actually view all this information kind of as your personal local Wikipedia, you know, once you've downloaded this massive file. I'm going to wrap it up. It's a long show. Uh, thanks, everybody, for listening. We've got a new show for you next week and plenty of other great interviews coming down the pike. Take care, everybody. And until next week, as always, don't get caught with your drawbridge down. <laughs>